It's mind blowing. Just it makes me speechless. I just I don't I don't know what to say about that. You just don't think that that could happen in that tiny little town where everybody knows each other and everybody supports each other and the community spirit is so unbelievably strong yeah, in that yeah. town. And even statistics, you know, there's worldwide statistics around children going missing or being abducted. You know, they don't in these sorts of locations. Yeah. You know, you, you're talking about a densely populated city or near shopping centres or schools or stuff like that. Not in this location. Yeah. No way. In this episode, we'll take you through every detail of the major police operation in those crucial first days after William vanished and what makes a search and rescue effort suddenly turn into an abduction and murder investigation. We'll reveal crucial evidence found at the scene and what witnesses told police about the suspicious cars and people seen in Benaroon Drive. As the days dragged on, the spotlight turns to William's foster and biological parents as they become prime suspects in their son's disappearance. We'll also hear from Peter and Jane about how they felt leaving Kendall and heading back home without William, with his beautiful smile and infectious laugh and an empty car seat in the back of their family vehicle. I'm Natasha Belling. And I'm Leah Harris. This is Where's William Tyrrell? Leah, we heard there from Jane and Peter at the start of this episode their chilling words about how they felt with William disappearing in this small country town in Kendall. You grew up in a country town. I grew up in a country town. You know everyone. You know who lives next door to you, all of the familiar faces. And I do think that is is what's really, really chilling about William's disappearance is the fact that, my gosh, a killer could be living amongst us. Someone's responsible for this. Who is it? Yeah, exactly. And as, as you know, growing up in a country town, you don't even lock your doors. You walk around the streets at any age without any fear. And that's a big reason why people live in these small country towns is because they do feel safe there. And to have something like this happen in a town like this is just absolutely mind-blowing. And what's also a positive factor with rural communities is the wonderful sense of community. And Jane and Peter spoke to you about those first crucial days after William disappeared. The community really came out to support them and they joined the search to find William. Yeah, they were just so blown away by the community spirit in Kendall. They just came out in droves and they stayed for days, you know, through the night searching for William and they turned up again every single day ready to help out. Um, and that's part of the reason why they ended up having to set up a staging area at the local showground, which was about 500 metres down the road from Benaroon Drive, um, because there were just so many people involved in this search and they needed somewhere to, you know, have, have strategy meetings, to feed everyone, to have everyone congregate, uh, including the media. So that was set up just down the road and a lot of those volunteers spoke about uh, at the time why they were there. Oh, it's a rough train out there. Um, yeah, scratches everywhere, but we just wanted to get out there and help. Look, I don't know the family, but uh, I've, I've, uh, I've got children myself and I know how I would feel if, if, uh, if I had a, a lost three-year-old. Well, last night I saw on Facebook um, the report that a little boy had gone missing and I've got two kids myself, a two-year-old and a six-year-old, and I know that 
you know, I may not be any use, I don't know much about the bush and I don't know anything about searching for someone, but I know that if my kids went missing, I'd want as many people out there as possible looking. As well as the volunteers turning out in droves, Leah, the local riding school was also involved in those initial first days in a search for William. So a lot of the volunteers were on foot. Some of them brought trail bikes to use all the off-road trails to search through the bushland. Um, but as you just mentioned, members of the local riding school, which again was also just down the road from Benarine Drive, saddled up their horses and they made their way through that tough terrain that a lot of people couldn't get to on foot. And again, at the time, um, some of those local riders spoke to local journalists about what they were doing. Um, as soon as we heard that the little boy was missing, um, the Camden Haven Pony Club, which I'm a member of, um, got together, we sent messages around. We just wanted to get out and help the community. Um, yeah, just We had to be out here when we heard the news because it's so devastating. Leah, you mentioned before the main operation was set up at the local showground. What was going on there during that stage? Yeah, so that was where all all the authorities as well as the SES and the volunteers were all gathering to basically get their briefing for the day. Um, and, you know, as local media, we were also there to sort of hear what was going on for the day. So they would gather everyone there and then basically hold a, a, a huge meeting about where everyone should be. And uh, this is some audio from, from one of those briefings. What you're going to do, you're going to go down to the showgrounds and you're going to search the grandstands, the stables, anything that's around there. Today is a very crucial day for this young bloke, Pastor Bonnie. But we want to cover every blade of grass and every stick and every point. And as the days continued and William still wasn't found, I guess the enormity of what had happened to William was starting to unfold and therefore the media's interest increased and local media converged on Kendall and the police held their first news conference. The first news conference was held on the Saturday, the day after he disappeared. Myself, along with some other journalists from Sydney, had arrived on the scene at that point and Superintendent Paul Fion, who was the local area commander in that area, held the first press conference at the showground on that Saturday. And this is part of what he said. Playing with a, a, a sister and um, uh, unfortunately uh, in the space of five minutes he's disappeared from sight. At this stage we're looking at uh, a search to locate a missing child. Uh, we're obviously open uh, to any possibility. Now we know, Leah, when they first issued that Amber Alert, they did release one photo and there was a lot of issues because of the foster care situation. But on these following days, the family then released another photo of William and, of course, that is the iconic photo of William minutes before he disappeared in that Spider-Man costume. Yeah, so that first photo they released for the Amber Alert on the first day was a photo of him from his daycare taken some weeks before. Um, And it wasn't until after they released that photo that Jane actually remembered that she'd taken those photos. Obviously her mind was just racing and, and, you know, couldn't couldn't think straight. So she remembered um, after that that she had taken some photos on her digital camera just minutes before he went missing. So that photo of William wearing exactly what he was wearing when he went missing was then released to the media on the Saturday and since that day, it's, as we know, been circulated far and wide and it's the, the image used in the cover art for our podcast. Leah, as the police investigation continued, they also looked at many local businesses in Kendall with security vision. Yeah, so as the hours wore on and still there was no sign of William, they did start to consider other possibilities, which was 
uh, included looking at who was coming to and from Benaroon Drive on that day. So as part of that, two senior constables from the local police attended local businesses and one of those officers, Senior Constable Rowley, actually wrote about it in his police statement and this is not his real voice. We then proceeded to check on local businesses in Kendall to see who had CCTV. Those that did were requested to preserve the footage over the last few days. Kendall Bottle Shop, Kendall Op Shop, Kendall Club and Kendall Tennis Club were premises that had CCTV and were going to preserve it. Leah, a very interesting point to this case that I never knew about. Apparently somebody went to a local cafe store owner and asked for directions in the area of William's foster grandmother's house. Yeah, so this came out quite early on that there was a a man, a mysterious man, who had attended the local cafe in Kendall, and there's only one. Um, he sort of poked his head in the cafe and asked for directions to uh, Batar Creek Road, which is the street that intersects with Benaroon Drive, which is the 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 road that you have to take to mm. get to William's foster grandmother's house. So Senior Constable Rowley also spoke about that in his police statement. 11.35am that date with Sergeant Kendall, I attended Miss Nellie's cafe in River Street, Kendall. I spoke to Janelle Nosworthy and she told me about a male person who had stuck his head in her cafe door about 30 to 45 minutes prior to the police going through town the previous day. She described the male as 5 foot 10, late 30s, early 40s, brown chestnut wavy hair, not crew cut but not quite collar length. He was Caucasian, no facial hair but unshaven with one or two day growth. His speech pattern was unremarkable, nil accent, and he said words to the effect of, Hi guys, can you tell me how to find Batar Creek Road? She thought he was holding something in his hand, and he was wearing jeans and a maroon t-shirt. A worker at the cafe at the same time also provided a description, which was recorded in my notebook. No vehicle was sighted by either lady. I had no idea about that person at the cafe asking for directions. What happened? Did police follow that line of inquiry? Yeah, of course, they followed every line of inquiry that could have been relevant. Um, and I'm not sure whether they did identify that person. Um, but interestingly, um, as you heard, he was asking for directions to Batar Creek Road, not specifically Benaroon Drive. So could have just been a coincidence or maybe it is relevant, but that is likely something that will uh, be discussed at the upcoming inquest. And what about the security vision? So police had searched and spoken to a lot of the local businesses and they were able to get some security vision. They soon established that the only security camera in the area which could have captured any cars coming towards Benaroon Drive that day was at the local tennis club, which was um, just around the corner on Arana Street. The camera showed one of two possible routes to Benaroon Drive, though, so you can take another route that isn't captured by that camera. Uh, and it took them some time to actually get access to that vision, but eventually they did work out how to how to get the vision from the system. Um, unfortunately, though, the passing cars that were captured um, by the camera could only be seen in a small part of the frame and you couldn't actually see any of the licence plates. Um, So all they were able to do was capture images of parts of the vehicles and sort of get a a vague description of what those vehicles looked like. Um, And that's why the police actually later asked um, all the residents in Kendall and anyone who might have been passing through to come forward and identify which one was their car. Day two has almost ended, Leah, with still no sign of little William. What was starting to unfold then with the investigation? 
The search on that second day was was scouring a 1.5-kilometre radius around Benaroon Drive and that continued throughout the afternoon and into the evening. The crews had checked all known bodies of water in the area. There was a creek that actually ran through a nearby property from Benaroon Drive, so they were looking at all of those options. Um, but unfortunately, as, as night fell on the second day, they still had absolutely no sign of William. Day three of the investigation starts, Leah, and Peter and Jane, Peter is continuing to be involved in the investigation and Jane is staying at home at her mother's house in case there is any information that she needs to be across. And then they decide that they need to make a statement from the family, but there are other issues and difficulties with that considering the foster care situation. Yeah, so obviously Jane and Peter were desperate to do whatever they could at that stage to try and help in this search. Um, And journalists at that command post that I mentioned before, including myself, were obviously asking to speak to a member of William's family. But they weren't allowed to front the cameras themselves, which was really devastating for them, particularly Peter. He's spoken about how that was so upsetting for him not being able to do something. He was just desperate to do whatever he could as William's foster father, Um, but he was told that he wasn't allowed to because of those restrictions we've previously mentioned protecting their identities. So instead, they'd had a couple of friends arrive overnight to support them. Um, One female friend was then um, designated as the person who would speak on their behalf, and so she did that uh, on that third day. Little William is a uh, much-loved and cherished little boy. The family uh, are devastated and they just desperately want William home. So if anyone out there has seen this little boy, knows anything about William, where he is, we just urge you, please, to contact the police. Leah, we've spoken before about how Jane and Peter weren't allowed to identify themselves because of legislation issues with them being foster parents of little William. To what degree do you think that actually plagued the investigation? And should there have been an element where authorities said, look, this is a different case, we need to actually put Jane and Peter forward? And were they happy to do that? The local police on the ground pushed quite hard for a lot of things that they were initially told they weren't allowed to do. For example, even doing that Amber Alert was something that, you know, was controversial in the circumstances. Um, And certainly, as I mentioned, Jane and Peter were keen to front the cameras, but they were told that they weren't allowed to. Whether that would have you know, been more effective if it had been them instead of a friend talking on behalf of them. I guess it's hard to say in hindsight, but it certainly is unfortunate that this situation prevented them from being able to do that. And one of the things I remember from from back then being one of the journalists in this situation is that we were told what the situation was, but we weren't even allowed to report that William was a foster child. We were allowed to say his name and show his picture for the purpose of finding him, but we weren't allowed to say why we couldn't identify his family or why there were legal issues surrounding it. So it was very confusing for the public and I think that certainly contributed to, you know, the confusion around um, who these people were, who were William's parents and and if, if they were responsible or not. And they admit that that is something they're very aware of, that that did raise suspicions that somehow they were involved or had more questions to answer over their foster son's disappearance. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously they were um, suspects in the police eyes from day one just because they were the closest people to him. But the public have, have always seen them with suspicion because of this and there was that mystery surrounding them from day one and not being able to even tell the public why we can't identify them. It just made them this unknown entity that then made everyone sort of feel suspicious about them. And as I said before, they understand that and they, again, spoke about that recently. They're the mystery of us. Mm. And unfortunately, it's the mystery of us. But, you know... But they are the we, circumstances. They're the circumstances that brought William to our family. And, you know, it's... We, we, we acknowledge and we accept that there is mystery and curiosity about that. And with having the curiosity and the mystery can absolutely see why people would see it in a um, suspicious way. So, I, you know, I understand that. It's, it's hard because at our core, you know, we're not people of mystery. We are two people who loved a child that is not biologically ours. Yeah. And we're two people who who have done everything we possibly can for him. At this stage, Leah, police are looking at all possibilities about what may have happened to William, including calling in the state's sex crime squad from New South Wales. Yeah, so at the time, this was under their jurisdiction because it was a missing child. It was protocol that whenever there was a missing child in any circumstances that the sex crime squad took control of the investigation. So they took control very early on and they had their on-call team there very quickly. Um, And as part of their investigation, they continued to revisit the possibility that Jane and Peter weren't being honest about what had happened. And as I said, they were the obvious suspects being the closest ones to him when he disappeared. So they're struggling with the trauma of what was unfolding as well as having to deal with being viewed as suspects by the detectives and I spoke to them about that recently. But they also had to consider other possibilities, Mm. um, including looking at you two and checking Mm. your alibis and and your Mm. stories and everything. Was that really tough? No. No, because we, well, I didn't find it tough. Did you? It's not tough when you know. We had nothing to do with it. It's like we you were know. like, here is everything. They took our laptops. And we were grilled. We were, we were, yeah, we were, yeah, we we were, were completely were... grilled, you know, separately in isolations, in, in back of detectives' vehicles. Every, uh, they yeah. took my vehicle away. They completely searched it, checked it. Yeah. You know, I mean, they did, they did everything. That and they we had to do. multiple conversations with multiple police people and, you know, detectives and um, all sorts of other police, always just checking in, just looking at, you know, corroborating things, checking with us, all sorts of things. And I remember saying to to you that um, if they didn't, I would have expected that they, from the moment we were, we would have had to have been their prime suspects because we were the last people to see him. And if they didn't completely investigate us, I would be absolutely gobsmacked because you've got to rule us out. Well, that's right. Because they're not doing their job. And we all know statistically it's the last person or a family member that typically does something like this. In this instance, we didn't do it. We had nothing to do with it. We have nothing to hide. We gave them everything. And they spent 
days and days. Completely obliged with, you know, they everything. Got our phones, they, they did checks on all of our phones, on all of our devices, telephone call, landlines, everything. cars, you name it. They, they cross-referenced the mobile towers. They did everything. They've got pictures of us travelling. They can show that yep. there's pictures of all of us in the car when we stopped at McDonald's. We're all there. I mean, everything we did has been accounted for. Yep. When, when you Completely. went and had your Skype call, that's all been checked up yep. thoroughly. So, everything. So for people who still have this conspiracy theory that's out there that we were implicated in his disappearance and whatever eventuates in the back end of that, yep. we had nothing to do with it. Yep. Absolutely nothing. Why would why and the would facts we? Are, and the facts are there to support it. Yeah. You know, and they've and they've done their, their tick boxes on on everything. Yeah. So they've confirmed that. So as you can hear there, the investigation into his foster parents was extremely thorough and that went on for months and months and months until they were eventually ruled out by the lead investigator, which obviously we will get to in a later episode. Another line of inquiry, Leah, that investigators were looking at was that trip that both Jane and Peter made to Kendall from Sydney that night before arriving at the foster grandmother's house. Yeah, so as Jane and Peter continued to um, speak to police and they made written formal statements a couple of days after he disappeared, um, and in those statements, which I've mentioned earlier, they detailed all the stops along the way and exactly what happened, and that was because they were looking into the possibility that they had been followed from Sydney. So police had to look into that scenario. They reviewed CCTV, roadside cameras, toll checkpoints along their route to see if there were any suspicious cars following the family along their journey. They even looked at, you know, vision from the McDonald's and and that kind of thing and even checked the, the car for surveillance and tracking devices. And that particular theory obviously included investigating the possibility that William's birth parents had orchestrated his abduction. So they had brought both Stacey and Daniel into a Sydney police station to make their official statement um, two days after he disappeared, and this is what they both told police. I do not know where William is, and I haven't taken him or organised anyone to take him. If I was going to take William, I would have taken Lindsay as well. I wouldn't take one and not the other. I have been praying that the police find him safe. I definitely don't know where William is. I didn't take him. I had nothing to do with it. If I took him, I would be gone and I would have Lindsay as well. Plus, I just wouldn't do that. I want my kids back so I wouldn't do anything that would stop that happening. I want a normal life. I don't want to be hiding away with them somewhere. If I did something like that, I could lose Francis and the baby that I'm about to give birth to. I didn't have a clue that they were near Port Macquarie either. I just want my son found. So those statements are obviously being read by actors uh, and it's important to remember that while Stacey and Daniel are being interviewed by police as potential suspects, they're also dealing with the trauma of of having their son abducted. Um, And, you know, this is after they'd already had him removed, um, you know, a couple of years previously and now they're coming to terms with the fact that he is missing. Um, And... There were caseworkers on the scene in Kendall, um, you know, working for the Salvation Army and the department who were keeping them up to date by phone um, about the search and, and exactly what was going on. Let's head back to the search operation on the ground in Kendall. And I understand they'd found some interesting items. 
Yeah, so several of the volunteer searchers that were involved in that ground search had reported back to the police command post that they had found some items of interest. And Senior Constable Rowley um, details this in his police statement. At 10.15am that date, Sergeant Kendall and I responded to a volunteer searcher who had located what they thought was a human hair in a barbed wire fence. We attended a fence line that runs along the eastern side of Batar Creek Road, directly opposite Benaroon Drive. At that location, I spoke with Michael Martin and his wife Cheryl. Their details were obtained and a small strawberry blonde reddish hair was photographed in situ, then removed and conveyed back to the command post where I placed the hair in a folded up piece of paper and then put that into an evidence bag which was sealed. So just to clarify there, situ refers to the evidence that was photographed where it was originally found before it was removed from the scene. And Senior Constable Rowley goes on to talk about more of these finds. At 11am that date, we attended bushland about 200 metres southwest from 43 Benaroon Drive. A small amount of red fluff was located by volunteer searcher Jackie McLaren. It was photographed in situ and then removed and conveyed back to the command post where I placed it in a folded piece of paper and put that into an evidence bag which was sealed. That initially would have been quite a promising lead for investigators, but I understand that was all later ruled out as influential or any interest in William's disappearance. Yeah, at the time, obviously, they were desperate for any clues to suggest where William might have gone. So this was quite, you know, an exciting development at the time. But um, that was later ruled out as not having anything to do with William. Jane and Peter had provided William's DNA very early on. And um, we can only assume that it was ruled out based on that. They also actually found a small um, fluffy pelican toy as well in that same search. And Police showed it to Jane and she immediately knew that it, it wasn't Williams, so still they had found no trace of him. Another line of inquiry that investigators were looking at, understandably and terrifyingly, were known sex offenders in the area. Yeah, and, you know, as we know, sex crimes was involved and, and that was one of the first things that they did was look at known sex offenders in the area, not just the ones on the official register, but ones who were known to have those kind of tendencies and figure out where they all were on that day, which is obviously a terrifying thing for a parent to think about. So, Leah, how many known sex offenders were in that immediate area and were they investigated? I can't say how many were in the immediate area, but there were definitely some sex offenders in the region and police did investigate all of them, some of them more thoroughly than others, and we will get to that in a later episode. William's foster grandmother was adamant that he hadn't, little William, had not wandered into the nearby bushland. Why did she think that? Oh, she obviously knew the area very well and particularly how dense that bushland was and she was apparently saying right from the start to police that she did not think he was in that bush, that someone had taken him. Um, And, you know, despite what they thought, Peter had still been helping in the search um, at least for those first few days, just just to keep himself busy. He needed to be doing something. So he was walking through the bush with all the volunteers um, trying to find his little boy. Uh, and I spoke to him about that recently. I mean, for four days I helped in the search. Mm. Uh, I searched every day and, and, and until, till, uh, till dusk. Um, it was, I don't know, you, you've got so much going through your head. I cannot begin to imagine what would be going through your head as a parent, Leah, in those moments. You've spoken before that that first night after William disappeared that both Jane and Peter thought they heard 
William calling out for help. That surely would be running through your mind that you would see glimpses of him as you were searching the bushland, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And you can understand how Peter's feeling at this point. The thought of sitting there waiting for news was just unbearable for him. And even though, as I've said, they suspected he wasn't in that bush, it it gave him something to do. It gave him something to make himself feel like he was helping to find his son. So walking around in that bush was all he could do at that point. Leah, let's come now to the cars in Benaroon Drive because... Jane remembers a few days after William disappeared about a car in that street. When this happened, police told her that, um, you know, when you're going through trauma like this, it's really hard to recall all the details of what happened and that she would probably randomly remember stuff, um, you know, throughout the, the following days that perhaps she hadn't been able to remember when it first happened. And that's exactly what did happen in regards to these two cars. Um, she had gone to Port Macquarie to pick up her sister from the airport. Obviously, she'd flown in to support the family and they were on their way back to Kendall in the car when it suddenly hit her. She remembered that when she looked out the glass sliding doors that morning, as you'll recall we talked about in episode one, she opened the curtains and looked out onto the street um, across the veranda and saw two cars parked on the street. A white station wagon and a grey sedan were parked between driveways, one in front of the other, um, and they both had their driver's side windows down with the rest of the windows being quite heavily tinted. And she didn't see any faces. She doesn't recall whether anyone was sitting in the car. But that was quite strange, which is why she noticed it, because it's a dead-end street, as I mentioned, and people don't generally pass through the street. They're there to visit someone. And if you are visiting someone, you use their driveway, you park on their property because they're quite large properties. So it was rare to see cars actually parked on the street, and that's why she noticed them. We've actually got some artist impressions of those cars that can be viewed at 10 Daily at our website. Um, And she kicks herself for not recording licence plate numbers. But as you can imagine, she wasn't thinking that was going to be significant at the time, having no idea um, that this was going to happen. And we know when, on the day William disappeared, William and Lindsay were riding their bikes and Lindsay, William's older sister, had also mentioned that she had spotted a car. Is that similar to the ones that Jane had seen? So that's an entirely separate car altogether that Lindsay and Jane both saw drive up Benarin Drive and turn around and drive back again. And she actually did see the driver of that car and Jane remembers what that man looked like to this day. He was um, what what she describes a, a large man in about his late 50s sitting quite far back from the steering wheel, which again suggested that he was quite a large, overweight man. And um, she has given that description of that man and the green car that he was driving to police. She's identified what type of car it was, but again, they still haven't been able to find the driver and, again, we'll come to that in a later episode. Was the driver looking at them? She said that they shared what she called a fleeting look uh, before he drove away. So just to clarify, there were three suspicious separate vehicles that Jane and Lindsay witnessed in that area at the time. That's right, and all three of those vehicles remain unidentified to this day. Leah, we mentioned within hours of William going missing that a search dog or a sniffer dog was brought in to help with the investigation, but that was of no use. And now there was another dog brought in and and Jane told you something about that. Is that right? 
Jane told me that at one stage a um, another sniffer dog turned up and, and she saw it out the front of the house and um, she immediately grabbed some belongings of Williams um, to take down to his car and give to him because she thought he would need Williams' scent if she was going to be looking for him. She would He, he would need the dog to get a sense of what he smelled like. So she grabbed some of his clothes and, um, and belongings and took it down to him to give to him. And the officer said to her, no, we don't need it. And she was confused thinking, well, how could you not need it? You know, you need to get um, William's scent. Um, and he said, no, we, we don't need that because it's a cadaver dog. And she didn't comprehend at the time what exactly that meant. Um, but as, as we know now, a cadaver dog is a dog that uh, isn't searching for a particular um, scent of a person, um, a specific person that that dog is searching for, dead bodies. Um, and when she later realised that, obviously that was a, a heartbreaking thought um, that, you know, there was a, a potential that they were looking for her son who was no longer alive. How long into the investigation was that? How many days had William been missing for when that happened? It was about three or four days after he went missing. Does that mean police knew more than what they were actually telling the family at that stage? It's possible it was a strategy. It's possible that that was... Um, geared towards a theory that perhaps he had been murdered. But it's also possible that they had decided that perhaps he couldn't have survived that long in the bush and and they were hoping that the dog would find him. Unfortunately, we're disappointed that we've been unable to come up with any lead at this point in time. We have combed many scenes many times and we'll continue to go back if there's any possibility or any suspicion anywhere. Only five days after William disappeared, Jane and Peter are being encouraged to head back to Sydney. Why? Look, I think it was about day five that their people started talking to them about that possibility and I suppose preparing them for that to happen because it started to become, you know, quite obvious at this stage that finding him in that bush was unlikely, um, that he, the hopes of him having survived were obviously very quickly fading and so authorities were starting to prepare them for that reality that eventually they would have to pack up and go back to Sydney and continue their lives, which was obviously heartbreaking for them to even think about and, and they refused for many days after that to leave without William. Um, and, you know, in the meantime, on, on day five, um, that family friend that we mentioned earlier continued to speak to the media and to the volunteers on behalf of the family. And they just want people everywhere to see his face, to know what he looks like. Hi, I just wanted to come on behalf of the family and say thank you to all of you for your perseverance, for coming out here every day. They are overwhelmed with the support from everybody that has been looking for their beautiful little William. They're just desperate to find him and are just beyond grateful to you all for everything that you're doing for just keeping up the hope for bringing William home. There isn't a person standing here who hasn't done something. You know, you ladies are here every single day feeding people and making sure that they've got the strength to continue the search and to continue looking for him. And, and the family know that and they see that. You know, they're just looking at their photos of little William and, and praying that uh, every day, praying that he's found. So, I just want to say thank you. Obviously, as the days go on, Leah, the 
the awful reality of little William surviving in that bushland, especially which I didn't know he had asthma. So without his puffer, without his medication, is very slim, isn't it, that he may still be alive? Absolutely. And and as I mentioned before, Jane and Peter were already pretty convinced that he was never missing in that bush, that he'd been abducted. But they did have to, to come to terms with the, the concept that if he had wandered into that bush, that he would no longer be alive. That was when Superintendent Paul Fion actually addressed the media to say that the experts had concluded that there was very little chance he was still alive if he was lost in that bush. Those experts have advised us uh, they cannot substantiate at this point in time that survival uh, could exist. So at this stage as well, police were actually re-interviewing all the locals about exactly where they were and what they were doing on the day he went missing. And they were also asking via the media, calling for anyone who was in Kendall that day, passing through or visiting, to come forward and give a statement to police about what they were doing. So, Leah, the ground search has now expanded, looking at about a 20k radius. The dogs have never been able to pick up a scent in the very, very thick, dense bushland. Now the Homicide Squad has brought in a special strike force and for the first time ever, authorities are mentioning there could have been the possibility that he was abducted. Yeah, so at this point, homicide is called in for the first time and that's obviously a significant development in an investigation like this, particularly for Jane and Peter, to be told that this was now a homicide investigation. Um, That strike force was called Strike Force Roseanne and it has remained that um, to this day. And that was when Jane and Peter were told that this might be what they called an opportunistic abduction and they spoke about that. So I remember... um Right at the beginning, people using words of opportunistic and all of those sorts of things, and I sort of didn't really have much of a concept around that, but, you know, obviously over time we've learned what that really means, but completely opportunistic. So when it becomes a homicide investigation, Leah, that means police believe that William has been murdered. They believe it's a strong possibility, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they have concluded that he is murdered. As we know, to this day, there's actually no evidence that William is alive or dead. But the Homicide Squad is the the squad that has jurisdiction over any of these types of major crime um, cases where murder is a possibility. So, And that's that's also mainly because they're just the best people to investigate this. They are the most well-equipped, they're the best trained people in the state and in the country to investigate this type of case and and that's why it became an active homicide investigation. So if he was abducted, have Jane and Peter or even the authorities looked at the possibility that if he was abducted, he could still be alive? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's always been an option that's been investigated and it certainly hasn't been ruled out completely that he could still be alive somewhere. So although Peter and Jane had been encouraged to leave Kendall and head home, of course, with Lindsay, and I can't stop thinking about little beautiful Lindsay who had lost her little brother, her little brother was missing, that they then made the very difficult decision it was time to go home. As we mentioned, they had been encouraged to go home and they'd refused for quite a few days now, but eventually after the search was winding down and and was, was basically finishing up, the homicide squad had taken over. This had now become 
a homicide investigation. It was no longer a case of a boy that had wandered off and, and gone missing. So they were told it was time to go back and, and get their lives together back in Sydney and, and try to figure out how to live life without William. There was nothing more they could do in Kendall. It, would now, it was now up to the homicide squad to try and find him. So they finally agreed to pack up and take Lindsay back to her home in Sydney and they described what that was like recently. I think we were there for long, longer than four days. It was almost ten days or something like that that we were there. I think in total, it was very difficult to leave. Oh, it was incredible! It felt, it felt. Yeah, you know, I didn't want. I didn't want to. No, I didn't want to. None of us wanted um, to go. You know, going back in your car and there's one car seat oh. empty. You know, I mean, that's just. Yeah. If you feel a level of guilt, you feel a level of um, why am I leaving here when, in actual fact, everything that relates to everything about him is back there. Yeah. Um, yeah. We felt when we were leaving, we felt we were leaving him behind. Yeah. And it just is awful. Yeah. And you look, but you're driving the car and you look behind you and there's a car seat that's empty. Yeah. And we've got all his stuff. We've got his bike. You know, and, his little... and we get home and it's just three people. It's, 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 you feel, it's like a completely empty, you know, you've, it's just so wrong. Mm. It's just so wrong on every level. That there's someone who thought it was okay to take a three-year-old and oh. someone who thinks it's okay to not come forward. But we didn't want to leave. We wanted to stay. But it was police who told us we had to go. Um, and it was um, some health professionals who also told us we had to go. Um and we just didn't want to go. It's just no way in the world we wanted to leave that place. We couldn't leave William. But we had to. Mm. And obviously you had his sister to think of as yeah. well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that and that might be part of the real reason why they probably suggested because there's obviously an impact yeah. for her. Yeah. And you, you need to have some sort of normal or normalcy around what you do. I mean, you need to let the police do what they need to do, Mm. but you still feel guilty about leaving. They are such heartbreaking words, Leah. I think it's, Peter said it incredibly well and so did Jane that they were leaving William behind and it's the silence not seeing him as simply as turning around the car and he's not there and they were leaving William in Kendall. I cannot begin to imagine how hard that is for them. Yeah, they've described it to me as it being like having their hearts ripped out and I'm sure that's exactly what it felt like. And to have to go back to Sydney and, and have Lindsay being all by herself without her little brother to play with and um, having to try and get back to living life without him, not knowing what happened to him. And that beautiful, beautiful little boy. And as Jane said earlier, Leah, this is so wrong on so many different levels that there is someone out there who thought it was okay to take a three-year-old. That person or persons is still out there. Someone knows something. That's right. Whoever took William is still out there walking amongst us. And the investigation to find out who that is is what we will cover in the next episode.
Where's William Tyrrell is produced and presented by Leah Harris in conversation with Natasha Belling. Produced and edited by Stuart Buckland. The recording and audio work by the 10 team of Mitch Willard, Bevan Tantu and Josh Pollock. Additional voices by Dom Halen, Charlotte Goodlett and Mitch Willard. Thanks to Tallulah Thompson for her assistance with production in this episode. And thanks to everyone in the 10 News team for their support. If you want more information about this case or this podcast series, please visit 10 Daily and go to the dedicated Where's William Tyrrell section where you can see the articles accompanying each episode that contain visual elements of things that were discussed. If you have any comments or questions for the show, please contact William at network10.com.au. If you have any information that may assist this case at all, please contact police or Crime Stoppers on 1-800-333-000. If you would like to find out more about the Where's William campaign, please visit www.wereswilliam.org. This has been a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.